Good day, listeners. Welcome to today's episode of Stay Word. Stay Word is a podcast we started. The goal is to inform, to offer diverse perspectives, and add a touch of humor where appropriate to events happening in Toronto and in our world that our viewers can connect with. We started this podcast to give thoughtful and purposeful perspectives. Toronto is home to us all, hence the name. We want to leave you with content that is a good use of your time. I am your host, Ahmed Mr. I need a haircut every two weeks and I don't feel a way about it. So precious, so please. Helping me make today's episode a success are my four brothers, Hirsch, aka Junior Chicken Connoisseur. I don't know what that means, but that sounds dope. I got my boy Hassan, Mr. Quarantine Movie List. Remind me after today's episode to reach out to you. I'm going to need some recommendations. We got Batter, the only man alive who can change a diaper in the middle of a 2K game and still give you a 20-piece. Last but not least, we got Elsie Ron, a.k.a. Elsie Belafonte. Thank you all for being here today. How's everyone's week been? Been good. It's been good. Great introduction. Appreciate you, brother. Appreciate you, brother. And how's your summer going so far? We're kind of in the middle now. Someone threw me for a loop the other day. They were like, there's only four weeks or something like that of summer left. I got my fingers out, started counting, and damn, damn sure it is <laughs> only, only a few more weeks of summer. What's going on? I feel like, yeah. I, and I feel like that's going to cause people to just say, you know, forget this whole quarantine situation. Let's just get out there and, you know, deal with this in the fall. The United States have been doing that since day one, I guess. I tested positively toward negative, right? So um, I got out to Prince Edward County. My family, they all think I went to Prince Edward Island. More to discover. I guess I got to get my family out in the province. You're a pioneer, bro. <laughs> I just found out about Prince Edward County like three weeks ago. So it's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. A lot of my coworkers uh, check it out and it's like a regular thing for them. Differences in culture, differences in culture. And it's actually very fitting for our first topic today. Now, when you think about Toronto, Toronto is one of North America's most multicultural cities, right? It's a population that's made up of 51% residents born outside of Canada, but it's also home to 230 different nationalities. Now, let's put that into perspective. Not only is half of our population consists of people who are born outside of Canada, but they also represent a number of different ethnic backgrounds. And if you think about our squad, even amongst us here today, we're a pretty diverse group. We have representation from the West Indies, from East Africa. We speak different languages like Somali and Arabic. And I thought it'd be a good opportunity for our listeners to get to know a bit about us and our cultural backgrounds. Laurent, as someone who's from the West Indies, take a lot of pride in being who you are. What's the one or two things that you appreciate most about your culture? I appreciate the fact that there's a shared culture among West Indian islands, even though we're all different islands and we all have our different ways of doing things. We all come together and we all recognize that we're one people, descendants of Africans, and we kind of just have this uh, unspoken bond that when we meet each other, of course there are differences and we have our little things. But for the most part, we kind of just identify with each other. And it's a, a love and camaraderie that comes about when we uh, gather to celebrate that's very, very uh, palpable. You know, so that's that's the thing I appreciate the most. My plan was to go back this year, but COVID. Um, so, yes, yeah, uh, I don't go back as much as I would like to. But when you live in Toronto, you're like pretty much you feel like you're in the West Indies because there's so many West Indians here. It's like. You'll find all the food you need. You'll find. You'll see people you haven't seen in years. So it's, it is a second home. Even when I, uh, 
I lived in New York. I lived on Flatbush. You'd feel like you're on, here in the West Indies. So I've been fortunate in that regard um, to have experiences that are uniquely North American, but still be able to remain firmly in West Indian culture. A home away from home. That's what you got to love about Toronto and the, the diversity, right? Exactly. Yeah. And one thing, you know, with, with culture, you know, there's there's things that we appreciate. There's things that we love. Um, there's also things that, that are unique to us that sometimes people from the outside may not understand. Hirsch, you want to walk us through some of the funniest cultural practices that Somalis have, being from uh, Somali descent, something that makes total sense to you and is accepted, but you think might be perceived as different from the from the outside. I'm going to try to keep a straight face. Honestly, this is... <laughs> I've been thinking about this topic for a little while. Um, we were talking about to, this yesterday. We were, ta- we were catching up about this yesterday. <laughs> and I wanted to cover the Somali reverence for absolutely disrespectful nicknames. So I don't know if it's like unique to our culture only. Like I'm sure maybe other cultures kind of have this. But uh, I remember in 2014, I came across this BBC article and a reporter named Justin Morosi, who they refer to as Timaade or white hair, was covering the topic. And it was hilarious because the nickname was printed on his ID badge. That kind of just gives you a sense of how important this aspect is in Somali culture. In preparation, I was asking my friends, and I've been asking around some of the nicknames. I'll share with you guys some examples. So there's Ilkabir, which means metal (laughs) mouth or braces. There's Ilkalaan, which means missing teeth. There's Kanara which is mosquito. So this guy was nicknamed that because of his long limbs. Fair wing, which means like big body. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> protruding sorry, guys. <laughs> There's a logo basto, which means past the legs. There's a balay madahwen, which means trouble with the big. There's a forgetto, which means fork, but it's to signify that their teeth are spaced apart. There's sunwin, which means big nose. There's Shirai, which was ultimately disrespectful. I mean, this person smells like ass. Bidaro is reference to a recessive hairline or balding. Halalkus, which is a chubby stomach. So, yeah, there's there's funny aspects in terms of the fact that for other cultures, there's a complete shock, I find, sometimes. But I guess the attitude that I find with a lot of Somalis are just like, it is what it is. We're not We're not insulting him. This is what we notice about him, and it's a signifier. I think the best you can hope for is just being named after a location or a place. So one of my dad's friends is named Portuguese, just to signify that he grew up in Portugal. And in a way, it's interesting um, because it shows that we have thick skin and a unique sense of humor. So... They dish it, but they also take it. So a lot of these people that are giving disrespectful names have names that are disrespectful themselves. And I'm sure not everyone is fond of their name. And certain people have been forced to do a rebranding exercise. I was telling Ahmed last time we met that Somali who's turned around their nickname to something positive should be given an honorary degree in marketing because it's it's pretty much stuck with you the whole time. Um, you have to do a lot of legwork. The facet of that story. You have to do a lot. get into another episode, but it's a fascinating story. Once it's there, it's pretty much there. Yeah, I just found it quirky. I mean, there's there's a lot of, not not to rag on the Somali culture, there's a lot of beautiful parts of our culture, but I think every most people who are Somali are willing to admit that this is kind of like a quirky thing. 
um, but there's a communal communal feel. So even some of these some of these nicknames I think have been used to like trace people as well. Uh, other people have ancestry.com. Somalis sometimes have these nicknames, and they start with the roadmap, and they eventually like ask enough people and are able to like get to their cousin or uncle or aunt. Yeah, I just found that really really funny. For for the not Somalis on the on the episode, do you guys have something similar or definitely uh, like literal names, like very okay. nicknames? Yeah, definitely. I'm from Sudan. Like we have similar similar thing we don't have uh i guess we don't have time for metaphors it's just straight description oh you know? like mm -hmm. hey the guy has one leg i mean he's one leg muhammad now you know so <laughs> i think the the ableism conversation uh hasn't yet reached sudan maybe not there's an opportunity yeah there's an opportunity that's, that's a nice way to put it but by hands down my favorite is logobasto though it's just uh spaghetti yeah. leg it just like <laughs> You understand the language. Yo, <laughs> this sounds funny or something. It's on site. Someone call me Spaghetti Legs. It's on site, man. But you don't skip leg days, man. My other favorite aspect of this is uh, when you start to bring cultural uh, foods to the mix. And most interesting moments was in elementary school or in middle school when, uh, um, as per the Somali culture, I would uh, have, you know, rice or beef or chicken or whatever in like in a little bowl and I'd have a banana with me as well. So when I take it and open up the banana and I put it uh next to the meal to eat it to to eat it all together and I would just watch every other person who wasn't Somali that was sitting around at the lunch tables just their the look on their face of how strange that was and getting comments like why are you eating a fruit with 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 your with your food? We we don't we don't understand how that works. It was more so second nature, so I didn't feel the need to explain it. They're but crazy for not knowing what it is. I, yeah, I was mostly came from that side of things, but it was really funny to see as the years went on, like it starts to catch on and us from our side start to understand um, some of our West Indian friends or Jamaican friends and how much they loved oxtail. And trying to have that discourse between us in like late middle school and early high school. Mm -hmm. um, it was, I think it was an interesting growth moment. And I don't know if the kids uh, of today, uh, teens or young kids in middle school or elementary school, go through that as often. Because I feel like there was like a breaking of the barrier with a lot of us first generations. Uh, um, immigrants that had come in or children of immigrants that had come into Canada and had to experience that. Um, obviously there was a range of, of different reactions, whether it was slightly dismissive or, you know, more accepting, but I think it was a positive conversation to have and more of an eye opening thing, uh, so as far as Toronto goes. And I used to be self-conscious about that too, <clears throat> when I would have a banana and like I pair it with rice. I used to get so many questions about that. Like when people would ask me questions like, would you eat an apple with rice? Would you eat an orange with rice? And I just didn't know where they were going with that. I was like, what are you talking about? They'd be like, it's a fruit with rice. You can't eat it. And then I just stopped. I, I, I just stopped explaining myself. And I was like, you really need to try it for yourself to understand. Um, some people, they, they don't get convinced, but like it kind of makes sense, right? And I remember at U of T, this guy looked at me perplexed and he was like, what is the banana for while my food was being microwaved? And this man is microwaving an octopus. 
So why do I have to like explain <laughs> that? The banana, exactly it seems to me that I... What happened to breaking <laughs> barriers? That's what I mentioned. This is all about yeah, breaking barriers. Uh, my experience is, you know, I would bring certain dishes to school. I wouldn't necessarily want to eat them. People would be like, what is that, right? Uh, one thing I eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner we eat in Sudan is pool, which is like called fava beans. I don't know if you guys Ooh, have ever had pool it. Pool is right? proper. So, uh, yeah, judging by the reaction, you guys probably know Ooh. what it is. Basically, when I was growing up, you don't bring that to school. You're the kid that eats the slop. Like, what is that? It looks like something you wouldn't eat, right? And now I, I'm on Uber Eats and like, Fool's been gentrified, and now I'm paying fifteen dollars for a fool. For you know, my mom makes it with like a dollar fifty of ingredients, way better, you know. Um, so I came from a place where it's like, you know, I didn't want to eat that at school, and now it's like everybody wants to eat that, right? And so one day soon coming is, you know, you're gonna go to a place and they're gonna offer you banana with your rice and your chicken because yeah, hell yeah, it's good, you know. One thing I would say is. uh it's not considered rude in Sudan to just show up to someone's house unannounced. Like, it's not considered rude. Really? No. (laughs) On top of that, like, if someone shows up to your house unannounced or not, in Sudanese culture, we're very, you'd say, hospitable, right? So if they show up unannounced or not, it's your duty to, like, make sure that they're, you know, felt welcome, you know, you have a meal, something at least prepared for them to eat, you know, because you never know, like, you know, who comes to your house for what reason, whatever, right? Um, so it's not it's not rude to show up unannounced, and it's also considered rude to like hurry someone out of your house, like, yo, all right, yo, look at the time, you know, it's oh, time to big problem, big problem, right? So I don't know how many times in my life, like, it'd be like ten o'clock at night, and one of my uncles shows up, right? And he's like, boy, get the tea on, you know, man, start chilling, you know? So, you know, I'm like, I got math in the morning, you know? Like, I yeah. can't it's a very Sudanese thing. I don't know if it's like that in other cultures, but uh, I think that's the one thing that kind of popped into my mind. The other thing is everybody's your uncle, so then they stretch that, you know? So, uh, and then it's every, oh, you're not going to let your uncle stay and hang out for a bit, right? And it's like, you're not really related. That's another, <laughs> that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> completely you know when you're talking about like people not leaving well then those <clears throat> the funny thing is the people that don't leave are the ones that can't take the hints anyway so like yeah, you might just start turning off all the lights in the house like one by yeah. one yeah and they're still like sitting there like all right we're yeah. gonna talk in the darkness like cool it's a vibe yeah no there's somali nicknames for those for those types of people but we'll, we'll get into that another time <laughs> <laughs> i want to get into our say word moment and this is the part that actually helps us from pivoting from our fun topics into our main topic. So I want you to imagine a scenario where you're in your car. Okay? It's a hot summer day. You're running errands. You're taking the regular roads and your windows are wide open. You're listening to the radio and a song comes on that you would not find on your playlist. And this is actually a song that's not that falls outside of your, your favorite genre. But you know all of the words to it. And you've secretly you've listened to that song over and over again. For, for our listeners, share what that song is and what's your most fond memory associated with it. Okay, so for myself, there's two tracks that come to mind. Natasha Bedingfield, that unwritten song, it inspires me. I think the crescendo is unmatched in terms of any of the tracks that I've heard. And I find myself from time to time, Mommy, you said in the car, but it could be whatever. If there's like a presentation that I have to deliver, 
there's like a project that I have to get through, I find myself like just sitting at my desk and having it on full blast. And uh, I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys, that's for a more mellow time. Those two tracks come to mind. There's no judgment. But for that song, even if you hear it at a wedding, right? If, if it plays randomly at a wedding, everyone on the floor, dance floor knows that knows the words. Yeah. From, yeah. Like, like word to word, so. No judgment. And even if there's judgment, I don't give a fuck. They're, <laughs> they're lit tracks. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I stand by them. Okay. Okay. Yeah, for Go me, ahead. man, like anyone who knows me knows that I, I listen to anything. Like anything that sounds good to me, I'll listen to as long as the message doesn't conflict with like my values and stuff. I'll listen to anything. So I always listen to, sometimes I listen to my playlists or my songs on shuffle. So we can go from hip hop one second to like 80s smooth rock to the next second. So I have a particular thing for 80s music, like smooth rock music and just 80s, that era in general. Like sometimes there are people in my car who are like, they're stunned to hear that I listen to some of this stuff. But I just want to say this, guys. Like, just because we're black doesn't mean we all just listen to hip hop and R and B all day. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we have different tastes. So, on my playlist, I have stuff like Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, um, George Benson, Give Me the Night, uh, Love Is a Battlefield, Pat Benatar, Eight Six Seven Five Three Zero Nine. I don't know if you ever, guys ever heard that one. Yeah. That's like I love Guns and Roses, bro. Like simple, like uh, Simple Minds from uh, that The Breakfast Club soundtrack. Don't you forget about? I listen to all that shit, bro. You know what I mean? So as long as it sounds good to me, I listen to. It. But when you're jumping from like, like let's say you're, you're riding around and you have your friends in the car and you're jumping from like some hardcore hip hop stuff to that, it's like jarring. They look, they like it causes an eyebrow raise when when you know they'll see me listening to something that I wouldn't, that's outside of the, the hip-hop R&B realm. No, it's all good, man. Everyone, like, we're all human beings, man. We're all here to learn from each other and listen to each other's stuff. Anything that sounds good, I'm with it, man. Because of the whole work-from-home situation, my daughter has to keep occupied, and, you know, I let her watch these Disney movies, and some of them are movies from when I was a kid, right? I have to say, I know most of the, most, if not all the words to all the songs, you know? Shout out to Moana. Help me through, uh, <laughs> help me through the <laughs> <laughs> Lion King soundtrack, you know? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. my God. Lion King soundtracks are undefeated. Shout out to Beyonce. Uh, I might... I might attract a beehive for this, but voice acting is is it's all right. But anytime she starts singing, it's like the the movie becomes like ten times more emotional. The thing with music these days is sometimes I hear these tracks that sound so yeah. similar, same tracks, like different artists, same tracks, same same producers they use. So having variety matters. Uh, I'll share mine before we move on, and this one. Even my brother gave me an eyebrow raise to this one when I told him when I was prepping for, for today's episode. And it was uh, Kelly Clarkson track from 2005, Behind These Hazel Eyes, which is such a dope song. No, no, listen to it. Listen to it. How does that song go? Can you give us a little something? I don't, I don't, how, does, how does that song go? How did it go again? Oh, I'm not going to do that, actually. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'll send you the YouTube video as well. Audience. Remember, no judgment. If it sounds good, it sounds good. No judgment. Yeah. Remember, remember the theme. So give it, give everything a chance. Behind exactly. these hazel eyes. Don't stop! Don't stop! Shout out to the first American Idol winner. But let's move on to our main topics. We had some fun there. 
Now, all friends fight, right? Sometimes over small things, sometimes over big things. And conflict is inevitable in our, all our relationships, among friends especially. And the reasons for the altercations can vary. Right? And according to a psychology study, there are many reasons that conflict may arise between friends. Common examples could be jealousy, poor communication skills, lack of consideration or respect, different principles or outlooks on life, or one friend contributing more to a friendship than the other. And now, the point isn't to talk about the study at all, uh, but I wanted to just offer some context to, to our listeners in terms of where does uh, the source of conflict come from. Now, uh, you know, imagine you're in a scenario where you have two good friends, you hold both of them in a high regard, What's commonly your philosophy or your approach when two friends have a dispute? And walk us through how you think about that. And if you have a recent example, feel free to share. It happens every so often where you have a group of uh, really good friends. And, you know, naturally with friendships, there's some friends you know longer than others. And let's say there's a falling out between someone you've known for 15 years and the other person you've known for 10 years or whatever. This happened to me recently, actually. Um, the person you've known longer sometimes tends tend to expect a degree of loyalty from you. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are, as long as there's a falling out between party A and party C. Party A is expecting you to, you know, just take their side blindly. And um, I've gotten to a point in my life where it's like, I, I kind of want to hear what happened. I'm not uh, going to just go off of what you said. Um, as long as it's not something that's going to be detrimental to you in terms of your, your well-being and stuff, like, I'm not going to take a side in that. I always try to get people to talk, but, again, I'm at an age where it's like, I can't, the extra problems, I'm like, man, I have bills to pay. Like, you guys need to figure this out. Like, just, you know, whenever you guys get a chance and you're ready, fix it. But uh, I used to be very active in trying to, you know, resolve issues with uh, people who I'm close to. I'm like, you guys can't have issues. Um I don't know if it's like that for you, but for you guys, but in, in the community I, I came from, disputes happen so quickly that you could be cool with somebody one second and then your family member has a dispute with them um, the next and all of a sudden you're supposed to hate this person because, you know, they had an issue. And that's how it went usually. So there's some people who I never really even had a personal issue with, but they just had an issue with a family member and then I had to, you know, not be cool with them because of that issue. That's a little frustrating, you know, because you want to deal with people as individuals through these layers of, you know, you know, whatever's happening. So that's that's always difficult. But I try to always, because if you can stop, like, people from, you know, harboring negative feelings towards each other, like, we're all here to try to help each other along. So especially if you're from the same crew or from the same family, from the same community, if you can resolve it, I try to. I try to get people to, you know, try to talk to both parties and try to get it get a resolution but uh it's also you know you have to take care of yourself too right you can't always put yourself in the middle of things because sometimes you put yourself in the middle trying to fix things and you end up being public enemy number one you know what i mean and they fix things and then you're left on the outside looking in like i just fixed this like oh you know so it's interesting i try to when i can but i think my overall thoughts on this now is that I'm at an age now where it's like, I'll try, but I can't overextend myself to, to mend issues. You got, everyone is grown. Everyone's, you know, we're all adults. We have to try to, you know, operate with reason and understanding and, and, you know, deescalate things and not let it get to a certain point. And at the end of the day, people have to be people. If you feel some type of way, 
you may have your process in terms of how you deal with your emotions and I have to let give you space to go through that process and you know so I try to deal with it with understanding yeah that's a that's a good point and I, I think you brought up an interesting point about maintaining neutrality especially when you're kind of the third party and two people are kind of in that conflict and it's there's almost sometimes not in every case but there's always sometimes this expectation that you need to take sides or you need to take one person's side over the other right because maybe you're related to them or you've known them longer or you have an affinity towards them whatever and it puts you in a really tough spot so maintaining or maintaining that balance and being neutral is always tough first was there anything you wanted to add as well this one this one is tricky because <clears throat> it's very hard to come up with a game plan because as batter mentioned it really depends on the scenario the way i approach it is value-based decision-making. The one thing I keep in mind is I think people tend to present their argument in the way that best suits them or puts them in the best light. Um, and that's just human nature. So I try to keep that in mind. So when somebody comes to me with a conflict, says, this is what this person did to me, this is how I feel about it, you have to understand that it's it's human nature to make themselves be the victim, whether they perceive it or whether it's true or not, it's you have to go through a thought process to get to that point, right? So if it's two close friends that I hold in high regard, the first step I take is tr to try to understand the facts and viewpoints. So emotions are uh, interesting or a tricky thing because sometimes, th sometimes they're not based in logic. So sometimes people can have like an adverse reaction to something that another person might not have thought was that big of a deal. The second step is to get the other side of the argument. So one friend told me one thing, like I will try to get the other side of the argument um, from the other friend and assess the impact on both sides and see how I can rectify and what the appetite is to rectify. Because some, some people are like, I don't wanna talk to that person. I'm not gonna try to force the issue. I'm going to try to get them to see that it's better to resolve it than keep up, for example, a, a petty beef, if the beef is petty. And I'm, I'm talking about stuff that are not appalling. Obviously, there's some things that are just so appalling that the, the bridge is burned at that point. It's very hard to try to um, bring people together. I'm talking about a scenario where something is, is fixable. So that's my approach. I think there's there's some stuff that I absolutely don't do, which is one, make a calculation based on who has more influence or who has more power. Like I don't make calculations on people's like social status. So again, it's based on values. If you're wrong, you're wrong. It, I'm not going to side with you just because you can benefit me in a certain way and the other friend can't. So I think and two is I don't make enemies with people based on someone else's slights. Downloading anger or hatred from other people, I just don't do that. I also don't think in absolute rights or wrongs. I think people can be complicated. People are complex. Like when we're talking about other people having interpersonal conflict, but we might have interpersonal conflict with others as well. Guaranteed, like everybody on this call, I'm sure there's people who see you in a great light and people who don't see you in that great of a light, whether that was a beef from a long time ago, uh, something more recent. So it's important to keep in mind that um, these things are complicated. Different things matter to us. Different things are important to us. You have to understand what the thought process is of that individual that feels they have been slighted. And I feel like a lot of the times, People are, when they're unwilling to engage in that work, a lot of meaningful friendships are lost because the ego starts to play into it. 
yeah, that's that's kind of my approach. I don't know if you guys had. I, I, I like that. I like what what was it? Value based decision making. Is that what you said? Yeah, value based decision making. Yeah. Did you come up with that, or is that you, you read that on? A, I'm sure it exists. Oh, I don't own the copyright for sure. Um, no. but I think it's it's it came down to when I was thinking about my my parents and a, and a life lesson that they've taught me from a young age was like don't care what other people think about you don't let that be used as your sort of moral compass and it's important to stick to your values because i find uh, as laurent mentioned if you if you take this approach so if you stick with your values eventually it comes around so the person finally understands a lot of people find themselves stuck when they appeal to loyalties um, but understand that nobody, no human is perfect, right? So if you're just driven by loyalty, you're going to find yourself in a place where you're constantly in conflict. If the person that you're loyal to like has issues time and time again. So it's better to kind of take it from an individual perspective, in my, in my opinion. So if you feel like your know, mom kind of on the wrong side of the argument, then I wouldn't say like ignore those feelings. And, and I think you, you mentioned in a powerful point when you opened, uh, when you started with your answer was acknowledging the fact that people, people have views on how they think the actual conflict arose, right? Like how they feel this was done to me. It's more of a me, 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 woe is me type, type approach, right? And I think it's important to recognize that, all that out in the process. You know, I, and I think every, we're everything we've talked about um, is, you know, us kind of being the third party between two people in conflict. Is it as, do you find that it's as easy to use these same approaches and philosophies when we're in, when we're in conflict ourselves, right? Let's say it's with yeah. our spouse or with a friend or a sibling or a family member, whoever the case may be. I think, I think especially for myself, I, I, this is what I mean by, meant by when I said, as I get older, I understand it more, is when you're on the outside looking in, it's a lesson to learn as well for yourself, right? It's not just other people having problems, right? You should also try to digest it as like, okay, look at this sort of disagreement or look at this problem that's unfolding in front of you and how can you use the lessons learned or the lessons not being learned in front of you? How can you use that to improve how you deal with conflict yourself, right? I used to, when I was younger and I used to play sports again, I used to play sports a lot when I was younger. I, I was very competitive. I had a fiery attitude, right? Um, and sometimes that, you know, that pushed the line, so to speak, right? Um, some of you play ball with me now and you know I'm very competitive, right? And you know the, the line I'm speaking of. I'm nowhere near that line anymore, thankfully, right? But it's, it's by nature, <laughs> it's by nature yeah. of seeing conflicts arise or unfold in front of me that are, have become serious. And I'm like, okay. There is something, and this is to bounce off of something that uh, Hirsch said, the, the point about like, you know, the truth, right? And for me, it's not even, I don't even frame it that way. It's more like the, what, whatever the truth is in that disagreement or in that scenario or in that problem becomes secondary to their emotions do, making them do something that um, might, they might regret or might be too ser serious or they might not come back from, right? It's too often like you hear about scenarios that where like people do something that you know it 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 pushes the line way past like you know people could be friends or family or whatnot right then it becomes then it becomes something entirely different right so you know we've talked about violence before on the show too like 
what's going on with Toronto rappers and things like that. And like the kind of hate and the kind of emotional things that are, are transpiring into like people losing their lives. Right. So like I said before, like understanding what's important in that moment and that scenario, I think that's the key thing. Right. Um, and then trying to let those people, or if you're the third party, letting the people in conflict, kind of remind them of that. Uh, but you know, again, comes back to the point, like, People are responsible for their own actions, and unfortunately, it does escalate and stays that way. So, yeah, I just wanted to yeah. quickly chime in uh, and say, if of I course, may, please. Um, yeah, so for me, I, I want to admittedly, I have been the person with the issue. You know, I'm not always like the person in the middle. Like, I've been the several times I've been the person with the issue. And uh, before, when I, I found myself getting very frustrated because I have, I have some friends, like I have one particular friend, a great, good homie of mine. This man is, is painfully neutral. He will not say anything about one side to the other. He will just, he, if one side's complaining to him, he'll keep it to himself and he'll hear what you're saying and he'll keep it to himself. He doesn't give it, he'll, he may throw in his opinion here and there, but Sometimes I'm frustrated because I'm like, you really want people to see your side. You're like, you don't understand where I'm coming from. Like, you don't get why I'm upset about this. How could you see it on like their way, right? And part of my growth and maturation as a man is really just understanding that everyone doesn't have to see it your way, right? Like everyone, like you can't force people to take a side or you can't uh, demand a certain, like, you know, everyone has their way of, of, of dealing with things and, uh, it's not fair of me to demand that someone sees things my way or you tell me what the next person is saying so I could continue the rift and stuff like that. So part of my maturation is just also checking myself, like being the person with the issue, saying, okay, what did I do to contribute to this? Because everyone's the hero in their own story, right? Everyone's the hero. In their, you're never the villain in your story. So understanding that there's nuance to it and you may be wrong, like despite how convicted you are about your position and you were right, sometimes you may be right, but it's always useful to humble yourself and try to see it from the next person's perspective. And that assists with de-escalating things. So I'm not always yep. the person, I'm often the person in the middle trying to de-escalate things. I had this thing back in college with me and my college friends. I used to call it the panel, right? So any issue anyone had that was part of the crew, you don't harbor it. You don't just stay in. You um, let it like boil up inside you. You come to the table and you just let it be known, and we'll talk about it, right? We did that religiously. Like if anyone had an issue, right? And I felt that that was healthy. Um, so I, I feel that uh, yeah, we need to do more of that as an adult in like conflict resolution. Just trying to bring everything to the table and. So I, I, that was one thing back in my college years that we did that I felt that was cool. And those friends that I did that with were cool to this day. Yeah. Conflict can be a good thing when it's done at the right level. And even before we, we move on, one, one last point I want to bring up that I think would be important for our listeners to, under, to understand is that people, and one of the things I've kind of experienced in my growth and mature, maturation has been people go through an emotional stage, and that can vary how long it takes. Right, where they're not thinking about things rationally, logically, it's woe is me type thing. And you have to let them go through that process. Like you have to, it's important. And then they go through a logical phase where that's when you can now start to talk reason to them, right? They're not as emotionally invested in what happened. Time has elapsed. And again, people vary. There's not like a perfect science, but that's a kind of piece of wisdom 
that I've kind of taken from 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 those older than me that you have to let people kind of go through that process and everyone's different, right? And you brought a real good point, Lerone, about not everyone has to see it your way or has to see it that way. Everyone has differences of opinion and that that's what makes us so diverse and so unique. We'll move on and we'll get into our, our last topic. I'm gonna completely shift gears here because what we're gonna be talking about is completely different from what we've talked about and it's owning property in Toronto. Now, this is a point of contention for most young Torontonians. For many, it costs a lot to, to own property. And, and even if you manage to purchase, it, it becomes really tight. Like your lifestyle becomes really tight. Narcity reported that in order for a single person to be considered middle class in Toronto, you need to make 135,000 gross income. 135,000. And the data was reported from a study by Fong and Partners, which I encourage listeners to read about. It's a very quick report about what is the cost of a middle-class lifestyle in Toronto. Now, so many thoughts, so many questions, so many feelings about everything that's been that's happening in our city. Lerone, I would love to, to get your, your input on this. Do you think there was anything that we, as a young generation, could have done differently in our earlier years or the generations prior to us to prepare for this what they call a housing crisis. I wanted to view this question. I wanted to approach this question from a like an open-ended kind of perspective, where because I, I honestly don't have the answer to, to this question, but it's something Please, I yeah, think about yeah. a lot. So one of the things I like to do is like speak to people from previous generations and pick their brain. I, I truly enjoy gaining wisdom um, because I'm not one of those people who believes that you have to, you need to learn from experience. They say experience is the best teacher. No, I think experience is the most painful teacher. But it's important that we don't conflate those two things, right? So I like to talk to the previous generations and see where I can avoid some of the pitfalls they may have um, been susceptible to. I've heard many stories from like my elders, like my uncles and people from the previous generation just l lamenting the fact that they did not get in on the housing market or the real estate market when things were relatively cheap. And I always wondered why. I remember there was one time we had a barbershop discussion and there was this group that used to come into the barbershop on the, the last Friday of every month to discuss issues that were pertinent to our community. In one of those weeks, they spoke about just ownership. In that discussion, I was really like posing very pointed questions to the person leading the discussion saying, why didn't you guys, because he was a member of the older generation, why didn't you guys get in on the market when these things were so cheap? Because you hear so many stories. I have... Um, my stepfather, like he has friends who bought like abandoned uh, houses near what's now located near the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. And now that property is worth millions, right? And the people who didn't get in on the market, they, they're always lamenting that the fact that they didn't get in on it. Like a lot of uh, these people, and I, I spoke with Hirsch about this at some point, a lot of these people are, they are first generation uh, immigrants. Well, the first priority is education. I'm trying to gain an education and, and get access to a different social class. The second priority is saving money. So they prefer to just maybe save their money, focus on their education. And by the time you're done getting your education, and this applies to us too, by the time you're done paying for, like, you probably had to borrow money to, you know, pay for your education. By the time you're done paying for your education, you're well into your 30s and you're starting from scratch trying to buy a house. And in Toronto, as you mentioned, the prices are through the roof. Like the prices are, are, are really, we really don't, if you're, if you have an advanced degree and you're working, you're making relatively good money, what people would consider good money as an individual, you can buy a home. 
despite yeah. the fact that the government has tried to do things for first first time home buyers and what have you, it's really difficult. And these are conversations that we have often as young people trying to own a home, right? So I do feel that the previous generation could have done more, but I do see us making the same mistake now that they made for different reasons because we do feel that it's very difficult to get into the market now and we're correct about that but a lot of us just become so disillusioned with the process and just we get so discouraged by the fact that we feel that it's not accessible we give up on trying we just mm. submit ourselves to the fact that we're going to be renting our entire lives and we focus on maybe hey let me just buy a I'll just buy a car or you know I'll get a new pair of this new pair of that and we kind of give up on that so I think we're doing a disservice to our children if we don't really focus on getting in on the market so we have something to hand down to them, right? We have yeah. to make that a priority. Other communities, other groups, they tend to do that by community. And I think that's also a reason why the previous generation in our community didn't get right. in on the market because it was a lot about, I don't, I don't know about how it is uh, with uh, your communities, but with my yeah. community, there was a lot of um, individual ambition driving that so you wanted to you know get your education you want to be to be the first crab out of the bucket so a lot of people were kind of hesitant to get together with other people to own property and what you find with a lot of other communities families come together and they figure it out they bring their brothers sisters cousins and they all put money in together and they buy their first house and then they use that to buy their second house and their third house and that's how they really get in on the market and they really establish their financial freedom. So I think there's a little bit of that at play. I think that still exists in the black community because there's an inherent distrust we have for each other uh, in terms of coming together that we need yeah. to get past. Yeah. So I yeah. think we need to really think about that in terms of how we can actually benefit in, um, in getting in on the market because there's a lot of uh, property that we can still purchase. Another thing I want to talk about, sharing yeah. information with each other. If you know there's a condo going up and it's a, for a good price and you could actually, uh, it's a good deal, talk to your brother about it. Help him get in on it. It's not something for you to keep to yourself and feel like, okay, I have this deal. I'm not telling anybody because I want to be the one to get it and no one else. So I think we have to be a little more selfless in that regard. Father, go ahead. Yeah. I, no, I think, you know, it's an interesting topic. It's like, a, like one of, if not the hottest topic to talk about really in Toronto before you know COVID obviously but um I think with the housing market I think you know it all kind of builds like a lot of the ideas of like oh we got to get it so Leron made like multiple good points where you know there's like multiple ways of looking at like owning a house um so like there's the financial asset that it serves right um but there's also like this social norm attached to buying and owning a house having a house and growing up in a house and you know the house in general right being like the physical location of like a family you know where you know typical or you know the nuclear family sort of setting right and i think you know as a as myself being an immigrant right coming here that was always considered like you know the ideal like the goal you know you you know you rent you live in government housing whatever it is right but you're always like okay buying a house that's like the pinnacle of like your role in the housing market and you know there was a point in toronto where it was relatively cheap or relatively accessible right um but then in toronto like we have an issue right there's a separate issue entirely where it's like 
maybe the difference between like purpose-built housing and, and private housing, right? So like purpose-built housing, maybe it's affordable home ownership housing. You have uh, rental housing. You could have low-income housing, right? So government housing, for instance, or co-op housing, right? Um, and then you have your private market, right? Where it's, where it's condos, it's rental flips, it's quote-unquote gen- gentrification. It's the selling and, you know, branding of housing as for capital or for financial gain, right? So it becomes completely separated from this idea or, you know, I guess I don't know who taught it to us or taught it to our parents, right? That like this is there's this social norm where it's like your 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 family has to play its life out in a house, right? And you have to have the white picket fence and you, you have to have all these things, right? And then we actually get older and we see that, you know, the way that the housing market is playing out and the way that people are making decisions in the city it's not necessarily true. It's not necessarily the goal. It's become a for-profit thing in Toronto, right? Not necessarily like a, uh, everyone should have the ability to live live with this reasonable dignity in the city, right? Um, and there are people that are definitely not doing that, right? The housing discussion also involves a homelessness discussion for me, right? And you look at homelessness is, has been on the rise in Toronto um, for many years, right? And so you think about it and you think about the other signs of problems with our housing market and you, and you say to yourself, you know, there's many signs and there's many, uh, you would call them, I guess, symptoms of bigger problems. I bring it back to the, you know, the purpose built housing versus the private market, right? And, you know, what, what are we building and what, who are we building it for? I don't know of many developments in Toronto. I think the only one I know recently is probably the, the Honest Ed's development that it's purposely built for rental housing. It's for rent, right? It, and a lot of studies have shown that, you know, when you do that, when you uh, build more rental housing in places that lack the density, that need the density for that housing, you know, that it's good for that community. It allows people to pay more affordable rents and spend more money on other things. But where else is that happening in Toronto, right? You have places like Regent Park. You, you don't see that happening. There wasn't an equal replacement of, you know, affordable rental or low-income housing uh, when they did that whole development. It's mostly now you see a lot of condos. Um, you see a lot of people in Regent Park that would never have been in Regent Park, you know, 10, 15 years ago. There's a lot of signs of things that are happening in our city and people are being displaced. We go back to the homeless discussion. People are being displaced. People are moving places where it's cheaper to live. People are moving to Brampton. People are moving to Ajax. People are living in, in Pickering now. They're willing to do the two-hour commute because that's what they can afford for for having that you know goal, for having that thing that you know someone said is a social norm, which is to have their own house, to have their own quote-unquote property, right? Um, back to Lebron's point, where it's like you know you got to get in on this. Like we have to do this, and we have to do it now. And we also have to recognize that a lot of people don't have the same access to the same housing market. Even if you had the income, even if you had the money, it's not like you're just going to pick up and move right in smack dab in Forest Hill and guys like us, you know, even if you're willing to make those relationships with your neighbors and whatnot, maybe they're not willing to make those relationships with you. Maybe you're not willing to even go down that route. Maybe things are more constrained than you might possibly uh, think going into it because, you know, you're like, okay, well, I'm a black Muslim male. I want to live somewhere where there's people like me. So then there's very few places where you can do that. Uh, and you can own, own a home and live with dignity and, you know, have your kids go to a safe school and all that kind of stuff. 
this is a very interesting topic. It's a very intersectional issue. And it, it kind of intersects with a lot of different things and a lot of problems that are going on in our city. But I think it's a very, it's like a building block for like, you know, things that we can improve in our city. Housing is one of those things. It's it's the thing that you spend most of your money on, right? So I think it's an important discussion to, to have. I, I agree with uh, both of your points. Um, I think just bringing it back to that core of us wanting the quote-unquote white picket fence idea, owning your own home, owning the land that it's, it's on, um, is is something that, in at least I can say for me, uh, my parents back home from Somalia, they understand what owning your own land is, what owning your own home is. And um, having to forcibly leave that situation due to the Civil War and come over here, you know, they had to start from scratch um, in the 90s. And the priority was to put food on the table to eat and have secure shelter. And for as long as we were growing up, that was the main function where that we weren't thinking about what else, uh, what the social mobility uh, going forward would be right now is to gain education and to continue to go forward as far as maintaining a safe abode of where you live at. But going forward, yeah, you do see a lot of similarities in the first generation uh, children of immigrants experience. But as you were saying, with all the gentrification that's happening, it's almost in reverse due to amalgamation and everything that happened when the six districts got brought back together, named as Toronto, and a lot of uh, wealthier individuals or families started moving out to the suburbs. But as time went on, the land that a lot of these communities like Regent, Jungle, and some of these other communities where they're sitting on valuable land where they're right next to shopping centers, the highway, the subway, very key access points. A lot of those people are now coming back and which has created the gentrification process because that land has now become valuable. And that has caused a process that is creating mixed income situations and sending people permanently away from their own community because they either A, can't afford to live there or they're just choosing to start over from scratch again. I think for us, having observed all these changes since we, ever since we came over here and, and have witnessed, you know, a lack of uh, financial literacy in, in courses in, in school or even um, things to do with uh, investments or how to buy your own home or land and e because your family members are obviously worried about more immediate things. It's important that for any you know, offspring that we may bring into this world to always give forward as far as like these, this information that we're receiving and this information that we're witnessing and to maybe for us ourselves take that first step forward and putting money aside, doing what Lerone was saying as far as like paying it forward. Maybe we have to take that on because we have noticed that the needs of others, obviously, and our own had to supersede our parents having to do that with us. So, yeah, I think it's more on us now to start giving out the, the helping hand because we are we are the adults in this situation and there are others coming up under us. We have to be conscious of, of, of the situations that we're in and yeah. some of the blessings that we do have and what we can do to pay it forward as we figure out, you know, our own way of, uh, of making it in, in this city, in this country going forward. Yeah. And Hassan, thanks for like adding to the narrative in terms of providing more context and, 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 and on what's a very complex issue in the city as well. So thanks for that. Hirsch, anything you would add to that as well? 
in terms of prioritizing that for for our for our children and for future generations. I'll just keep it short because you guys made a lot of great points. Um, I think there's a lot of feelings around our generation, in particular millennials, um, and we get clowned sometimes. People complain too much about the current status of like housing prices, but I want to put things in context. So there's a Financial Times article that I was reading, and it said that almost half of Canada's millennials think that owning a home is just a pipe dream. If you ain't got it by now, yeah. then you just ain't getting it. Let's yeah. go. And I know people who have that kind of sentiment. When you look at the prices, I think last month, the average home price in Toronto was a million $22,138. When you're thinking of these figures, they're just staggering in terms of what it, what it costs to really get in the market. And that, that's average. So it's not the homes you see on Twitter. Uh, it's not the homes you see on social media. More like the homes that, you know, you see in terms of like maybe a bungalow or somewhere let's just say it doesn't come with all the bells and whistles and that's that that's average and annual incomes are just a fraction of the cost of buying a home compared to previous generations so this is really the, the heart of the problem that i always kind of get at it's the fact that wages are not keeping up with inflation so in effect we're making pretty much comparable money to generations previous to us but the cost of living is uh, getting more and more expensive at such a rapid pace. So it, it's it's okay. I feel like it's natural for our generation to feel the way when you hear a guy talk about like, oh, I got in the market in the 70s as uh, someone who worked worked as a postman or worked as a truck driver. And now these guys, they, they, they were all able to afford a home, right? And you're sitting there with like two degrees um, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, how do I enter the market? I've pretty much done what was expected of me. Th that used to be the calculation, right? You go to school, you get a good job, you're able to buy a home, you buy a home, you have your, your family. And I think our generation, and maybe it trickles into Generation X as well, are generations that are really looking at it and saying, okay, so like, where did we get, go wrong in the process? Right. KPMG pointed out that debt to, in debt to income ratio for young millennials is as high as 216 percent, while it was 125 for Gen X and 80 percent for baby boomers. So our level of debt is also increasing when you think about the cost of even going to school. I, I know people that were like my total tuition cost for all four years is like six thousand dollars. So you got paid pretty much comparable to what I get paid. Um, you took on a lot less debt to go to school and housing prices were reasonable for you to enter the market, right? And I'm, I'm sure this is not a uniquely Toronto problem. So, for example, one bedrooms in San Francisco where I have some cousins living are 3384 a month on average. So when people think about like Toronto and yeah, that's a lot. one bedroom, one bedroom, and that's American yeah. money. That's American yeah. dollars. The US dollars, yeah. So when people say like Toronto is bad, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it could get worse. And then and, and I don't know if COVID maybe like is the hiccup and that's where we're headed anyway, but like it can get a lot worse and it can get a lot less accessible for people. So let's think about our generation. One of the things that I think about, and I have this discussion with my wife often, being conscious of entering the market in terms of what value you get back. A lot of this factors into, for example, if the province decide you might 
instead of buying a home in Toronto, you might go to London, Ontario, where you can get a lot more value for your money. If the province at any point decides to build high-speed rail between the corridors, now you got a big lot for the price that you paid, and you're pretty much coming into the city at the same travel point as like Brampton, for example. So I feel like our generation, we're taking a thought in terms of like, for those who are even privileged enough to consider entering the market. So for our generation, we're thinking about value. How do we maximize our value? Like, where do we put our money into it? And another consideration for this is the fact that now you're seeing more set up for work from home. So the question becomes, do you even need to live in a city like Toronto to get access to these good jobs? And if you don't, I feel like everybody wants to maximize their um, return on investment. So for me, I, pr I don't prefer condos. I'm not a huge fan of condos. I would like my own property on the ground kind of thing. So where is it that I want to raise my family, number one? And where is it that I think I'm going to get a return on investment? Uh, so I, I feel like there's so much considerations that people have um, and calculations that people have because of how expensive it is to enter the market. But before people might take a flyer, if the home price is like $100,000, people might be like, yeah, whatever, we'll buy it, we'll see where it goes, yada, yada. But when you're looking at something that may cost you a million dollars, now like thoughts that you put into that purchase obviously are hold so much more weight. So I think that's an aspect that, that doesn't get covered that much. I feel like, it, yes, the challenge of even entering the market is is covered a lot from a millennial perspective, but the value thought process, I think, is not talked about enough. And, and as Laurent mentioned, we're always in constant search of, okay, if you, if you see something, and, and that's why information sharing is so important. It's like if you see something in an up-and-coming suburb, some of these people moved into Ajax, moved into Pickering, where there's like nothing there, right? And, now, and they share it amongst their friends, and now they all own homes there. And now it's like a booming section of the suburbs. So I feel like that's kind of what we're looking for. We're, we're, we're being tactful um, and responsible about our decision-making. And just because of the costs associated with it, this is not a decision that you want to take lightly and it's not a decision that you want to make in haste. Now we're going to end it there, gents. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your perspectives. For our listeners, thank you for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoyed what you heard on today's episode of Say Word, please comment, like, share, and subscribe. Simple steps for support go a long way. We hope you found this insightful. We hope it made you think, and we look forward to having you join us for our next episode. Be safe, everyone. All right, guys. Bye. All right, guys. All right. Cool, cool. All right, peace. Peace. Yes, bye. Bye.